Hello everyone and welcome back to the AirPod with Maggie Rooley, back in the passenger seats. Is that that fair to say? <laughs> I call shotgun Omid. <laughs> it's good to be back. I've missed you. It's been a while. It's great to be reunited, albeit um, virtually, because <laughs> we still yeah, haven't the best we can made do it right back now. <laughs> into a studio yet. <laughs> The, the time is getting closer. I feel it, but uh, not quite. We're not quite there yet in London. It is. It is exactly that way. Uh, you have been, of course, away for a few weeks, but that hasn't stopped you from keeping your fingers firmly on the pulse of the royal beat. And we've been doing exactly the same over here. And it has been uh, an, a week of up and downs when it comes to royal news. Uh, This week we'll be talking about why the Queen is, after some time, finally in the mood for celebrations. In fact, we've got details of several of them uh, in the works for Her Majesty. We'll be catching up with the Duchess of Cambridge, who joked about dressing Prince William in a Spider-Man suit. And we also have details on Joe Biden's visit to Buckingham Palace that's taking place, uh, depending on when you listen to this, any day now. Um, We'll also be looking at uh, new reports in Britain's Guardian newspaper that spoke about how Buckingham Palace banned ethnic minorities from office roles. Uh, We have all the reaction from Buckingham Palace on that and further details from the article. And we'll also be checking in on a brand new exhibition at Kensington Palace that has Princess Diana's uh, wedding dress out on display in the UK for the first time in over 20 years. So quite a lot to catch up on, Maggie. (laughs) I know, the royals always seem to keep us busy, and I have to say, I loved seeing uh, Diana's wedding dress on display. I forgot how uh, beautiful, but also, how do I say this, sort of of the time it was. It definitely showcases the fashion of that generation as well, which is always so fun to see. I'm excited for to chat about that later. Definitely, me too. And in fact, I sadly missed out on a preview of the exhibition this week uh, because I have had somewhat of a full plate over here. So I'm also going to be checking that out myself this weekend. But we'll be speaking with one of the curators from there for all the details and gossip um, from behind the scenes and some stories about the dress. But before we jump into any of the royal news, it is of course June and that means it's Pride Month and ABC News is kicking off the month with its first ever LGBTQ plus issue focused podcast. It's called Life Out Loud with LZ Granderson. He is of course an ABC News contributor and in this show he's drawing from his own lived experience as a gay black father to host inspiring, provocative and often funny conversations to help preserve the history of the LGBTQ plus community. So it'll delve into politics, cultural touchstones, historical events. And the first two episodes are already out now. They're exploring the impact of the series Pose, which has just wrapped its third and final season. But there are 10 episodes in total. You can find it on any platform that you listen to your podcasts on, including, of course, Spotify. So do check it out. Maggie, I hope you've marked your calendar for 2022 because... We have brand new details for the Platinum Jubilee for the Queen. Four days of festivities have been announced by Buckingham Palace, taking place on June the 2nd to Sunday, June the 5th. These events include a special Trooping the Colour, 
a service of thanksgiving, a concert at Buckingham Palace, which I'm looking forward to. I remember the Diamond Jubilee concert in 2012, about which ABC exclusively covered at the time, and it was quite the occasion. Um, there'll also be a series of street parties and picnics, which, listen, you've lived here long enough, Maggie, I feel like you know the score that comes with the territory when, when there are royal celebrations to be had. Yeah. Well, what I loved about this, this was my first time living through this experience in the UK, but when this was announced, people were not just excited to celebrate the Queen, they were also excited because they turned into bank holidays. So this is something that you know, the people <laughs> of the UK um, were waiting to hear. And so all over Twitter, it was like, um, what is it? It's, it's two bank holidays around a weekend, so it's four days off. Is that right? Yeah, it is. It is yeah. a full four days So just days imagine off. this, my American friends. You get to celebrate... And you get an extra two bank holidays, two days off of work. This is major. Like, this is a thing to look forward to. Although I hate to break it to you, but that does what? mean more days of work for us, not less. Oh, that is true. <laughs> yeah, but I like to think of it as like more days of work slash celebration. <laughs> well, absolutely. And it is a huge milestone for the Queen. 70 years on the yeah. throne. That officially is marked on February the 6th next year and that really starts obviously we've got the main celebrations for the four days in June but it's really as the palace say it's going to be a year long of okay. uh, platinum jubilee celebrations and that's throughout the UK the Commonwealth and around the world they want to see communities and people coming together to celebrate the longest reigning mm. British monarch so quite the feat for her and no doubt we'll ha see all members of the royal family involved in those events. Uh, it will, of course, see Trooping the Colour back to its old pomp and pageantry that we <laughs> haven't seen for a couple of years now. In fact, you've got details on how Trooping the Colour this year is going to look in a second. Um, but we'll also see special moments like Jubilee beacons lit across the UK and overseas territories. Uh, those are lights or beacons, obviously, <laughs> uh, lit up um, in grand style to mark the occasion. Um, but as I said, there is also that platinum party at the palace. It's a live concert. And the royal household said in a statement it's going to bring together some of the world's biggest entertainment stars to celebrate the most significant and joyous moments from the Queen's mm. seven-decade reign. So I'm really interested to hear who they might have gotten for that lineup. Oh, but who did they have for the Diamond Jubilee celebrating 60 years on the throne? Well, it was quite an eclectic lineup. They had Elton John, Stevie Wonder, Paul McCartney, and Tom Jones as well, who, do people in the US know Tom Jones? He's obviously an institution over here in the UK, <laughs> but... We know, we do. We definitely know Tom Jones. I mean, I was going to say, that's kind of the, the, the biggest hits of uh, British musical history, but also American musical history. I mean, talking Paul McCartney, those are Elton John, come on. These are like the biggest of the bigs. Exactly. Uh, Ed Sheeran also performed. I'm trying to think who else. Uh, and also some of the moment artists, Will I Am and Jessie mm. J also performed. I don't think we've oh my God, I love them. knowing what the Queen, I love thinking <laughs> about the Queen dancing to Will I Am. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I'd like to think that she's up for that one more time. <laughs> <laughs> I bet she is, actually. I bet she is. 
Um, we'll also see the Queen enjoying her hobby of horse racing throughout the celebrations. During that four-day weekend, she'll be attending the Royal Derby at the Epsom Downs course. Uh, that will no doubt be the first thing that goes in the diary for her. We know how much she loves horse racing. In fact, the Royal Ascot is the first thing that's put in her diary every year because it is her favourite event. So I'm sure this will be no different. And of course, next weekend, Maggie, we have a rather low-key Trooping the Colour to, I guess, tide us over until that big moment in 2022. It's like a little nibble. It's a little nibble, Omid. I mean, I just have to say, not that this is all about me, but, you know, it's I'm going to make it all about me for a second, is that I moved here almost two years ago, but I've never experienced Drooping of the Colour with the Queen because last year, you know, it was cancelled. This year, it's slimmed down. So hearing about next year's celebration is definitely, you know, and unlike other years where she's just surrounded by, you know, friends, family, the whole city this year, um, she's going to kind of be by herself. Uh, but she will have her first cousin, the Duke of Kent, who will be there with her as well. So she won't be alone. Obviously, all eyes are going to be on her. This is you know, her first birthday celebration without Philip by her side as well. So uh, everyone's going to be thinking of the Queen as, we, as they always do at uh, this time of year. But especially this year, you know, I think people want to know that she's kind of... Um, taken care of, not by herself. So it's really good to hear that at least she'll have one family member who's there with her. And you mentioned her love of horses. You know, there's always going to be the King's Troop Royal Horse Artillery and the Household mm -hmm. Cavalry Mounted Regiment. So uh, that will be part of the military parade as well. So, you know, yes, it is extremely scaled down, but we're going to have still a little bit of that flair, that pomp and circumstance as well. So uh, we'll, get, we'll get a taste of it, Omid. Something to tide us over, like you said. Absolutely. Well, this is her still technically in her Windsor bubble um we are the timing of this is so close to when we in the UK officially leave our lockdown on pretty much every level obviously further announcements pending who knows but that is the plan at the moment so it, it is interesting that this year they're sort of just so close to potentially having a bigger moment for it but obviously this is the much safer option. I think when you start drawing crowds, it starts to become a bit of a nightmare or a potential nightmare. So this is things being kept safe. And of course, the Queen's safety front of mind for everyone involved too. Um, but she, of course, won't be short for guests because that same weekend we see President Biden making his big visit to see the Queen for the first time in person. We know that they've spoken over letter since he was sworn in as president, but this will be their first face-to-face -face encounter. Uh, the Queen's 14th of 15 presidents uh, during her time wow. as the current reigning monarch. So another one to tick off the list. <laughs> I'm so excited for this. I mean, I think... Uh, Especially the, this merging of American presidents with the Queen. It's something that as an American I always find so fascinating and why the Queen is on my you know, list of the three people you want to have dinner with. Because just imagine the people that she has, she has met. Um, you know, the Crown kind of gave us that little look too. At, if you remember when you know, she, uh, she met the Kennedys, it was a big scene in the Crown. And so um, I always love thinking about what it must be like behind palace doors, right? Behind those closed doors, the meeting of these two powerful people um, and now we have it with you know our, our fairly new president in america joe biden um, i'm really excited for this one 
Yeah, well, he'll, of course, be with the First Lady, Jill Biden. They'll both visit Windsor Castle. No doubt it'll be tea at the Queen's private apartment inside Windsor Castle. And I think that's always what's so special about those moments with the sort of current US president that the Queen has. It's their opportunity to not only uh, continue that strong relationship that the UK and the US has, but it's kind of a bit of a clout moment as well like it's a badge of honor you sort of have that private time with the queen and obviously this isn't an official state visit we won't have the state dinners or the usual things that we see with it i'm sure that will come much later on if you'll remember it was very similar with president trump as well who met the queen on two occasions but she's always had a really close relationship with uh, whoever is the u.s president at the time um, in fact i was recently reading back on a lot of these. And I particularly loved her relationship or reading about her relationship with President Eisenhower in the 50s. Um, And they apparently got on so well that they stayed in touch via letter for years following, even after he was president. And she would send over recipes, sending, I think she sent over a recipe for burnt scones. I think it's called burnt scones. I I may may have got that wrong, but, um, or drop scones. Maybe that's the correct, Mm. um, it's a sort of type of Scottish delicacy. Um, But it's, it was was very interesting to see how personal those conversations are. And I'm sure she's very excited to meet Joe Biden. We heard how excited she was when the palace, almost immediately after he was uh, voted US president, announced that she had already been in Mm. touch with him. It'll, of course, be a really interesting trip for him because he is over here for the G7 summit, uh, which is also taking place in England. He also has a meeting with uh, President Vladimir Putin. So this is really from like one extreme to the other. From the Queen to Putin. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, But this, you know, this is when we talk about that soft power that Mm. members of the royal family have. I think this is it in action. It's, It's sort of strengthening that bond between the US and the UK without actually involving the government or the prime minister. So it sort of keeps that relationship special, Mm. keeps it apolitical, which is always important. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll get plenty of details from it at the time. Of course, the White House press pool will be inside the palace too. So uh, I'm always interested to hear the reporting coming in from those not part of the royal beat. Sometimes it's those things that others notice um, that those of us inside the bubble tend to take for granted that make the most entertaining stories. That's such a good point. I, I just got some uh, messages from some of the ABC team that's coming over to cover it, and they're so excited to be coming to to London, uh, you know, with with Biden and the Queen. And so you're right. I'm very excited to see someone from outside the the royal rota what their take on events are. <laughs> now, Maggie, you've had both of your COVID vaccinations now, haven't you? Yes, I have. I had my first recently, Ooh. and so did the Duchess of Cambridge. Uh, Kensington. You're in good company. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm sort of like wedged <laughs> in between William and Kate when it came to the timing of mine. But she, uh, Kensington Palace, proudly announced it on Twitter. In fact, I say Kensington Palace, it was written in first person. So wow. correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but I think this might be the first time we saw Kate write her own tweets on the Kensington Royal account. And it was laid back on every level. We saw the Duchess in jeans, in a sort of 
fashionable top, um, having her COVID vaccination at the Science Museum in London, which is a pretty cool location. I, I was I kind of jealous of the location. <laughs> I know. I was like, they're having at the Science Museum? Uh, Very cool. And she wrote, I'm hugely grateful to everyone who's playing a part in the rollout. Thank you for everything that you are doing. I think it's great that they're sharing these moments mm. um, and also great to see them getting them at the same time as everyone else in that age group. Yeah. It's real proof that there is no special treatment when it comes to the rollout of the vaccination over here. We really stuck to that age order. And um, it's been, I think, great to see the royal family members also get theirs done in the same order as the nation. I would imagine that at this point, we've probably seen every senior royal or every royal over the age of 30 have their vaccination now. I was just thinking the same thing. I don't think we're missing anyone. And, you know, I did love and I have loved how they've been so public of it, especially um, these younger royals. And, you know, while sometimes I don't like to mention the outfits, I thought the same thing, Omid, when I saw the photo of Kate. I was like, whoa, this is laid back, Kate. She really (laughs) is so casual and just like an everyday person. And uh, I sort of loved it because it really showed... um, this is her just going to get her vaccine. And in my mind, it was like, this is the every woman that should be going to get their vaccine right now if you're pretty much, I think, over the age of 18 now in most of the nation. Um, So again, just a a great message to get this across. Now's the time to do it. And I love that they've been so universal in this message um, really since, since the start of the pandemic. Yeah, it wasn't the only personal note that we saw from Kate on social media last week. She also shared a piece of her own art, uh, an original drawing sketched by Kate. Uh, This came at the tail end of their visit to Scotland. Of course, successful pretty much from start to finish. uh, When from Kate joining, we saw uh, really strong coverage here in the UK, although not so much overseas, but it was a very domestic focused Mm. trip. Um, But she had included a postcard on this Instagram post of a sketch of St Andrews, of course, that's where the couple once lived, um, alongside a thank you note to everyone, the communities, people and organisations in Scotland for making their trip so special. This, I think, is a continuation of just this really personal touch that they're trying to bring to their social media. You know, ever since things have not been the same since they changed to the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge on, on Instagram. It's it feels like it's very much their account, uh, their own curated content. And I think they are probably the only members of the royal family that are doing things on a much more personal level at the moment. There's less of a gap between hmm. them and the members of the public, or at least that's the intention. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's rare you can kind of see the switch. Um, So obviously, it's been interesting to watch unfold. You're 100% right, Omid. You know, ever since they changed that name, uh, you can tell there's this effort to... uh, sort of eliminate that that third party, right? Where it feels as if someone else is writing the content for them. Now it really feels as if they're trying to reach out to the people. Absolutely. Well, coming up after the break, we're going to be looking into a new investigation that reported that Buckingham Palace banned ethnic minorities from official roles in the household. This was in the late 60s. We had reaction from Buckingham Palace, so stick around. Welcome back. Well, it wasn't that long ago that we heard Prince Harry and Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, talk about the racist comments that they 
witnessed uh, during their time as working members of the royal family in their interview with Oprah. Uh, we heard back from the palace at the time. Uh, many were not so satisfied with the response, some were. I would say the fallout wasn't that long-lasting because we seem to have moved on, the conversation seems to have changed. That's generally how it is. But this week, racism and issues regarding race and the royal family were back in the spotlight after Britain's Guardian newspaper unearthed documents in the national, the British National Archives uh, that revealed that the Queen's courtiers had banned ethnic minority immigrants and foreigners from holding any kind of clerical position at Buckingham Palace or in the royal households until at least the late 1960s. Uh, the report went on to quote the chief, Queen's chief financial manager at the time, saying that it was not, in fact, the practice to appoint coloured immigrants or foreigners to these roles, but they were, however, allowed to be hired as domestic servants. Hmm. Not a great. That's tough to read. Yeah. Thing. To, yeah, it's it's tough to read, but and I would you know I would caveat this with we are talking about a time where the issue of race and diversity in the workplace was almost non-existent. And mm. I think that that was on every level, not just at the palace, but in workplaces, particularly in the West, around the world, US and UK. But I think what was very interesting about this investigation was that... Um, the investigation from The Guardian revealed that decades ago, the palace had used what is called, what is known as the Queen's Consent. It's a parliamentary procedure. And they used it to obtain an exemption from UK legislation uh, that was aimed at preventing discrimination in the workplace. Uh, that includes hiring people based on their ethnicity. And they had actively used the Queen's consent to remove themselves from being included in that workplace law. What was very interesting about it is that the reports also on author, the Queen is still exempt from those laws today. So that, of course, raised the very big question of where does the royal household stand when it comes to our current Equality Acts, which are enforced across workplaces around the country by law at the moment. And there was silence from the Palace Maggie for quite some time. And I think what was so interesting about this was given the number of race scandals we have seen the royal family tied up in in recent years, from Princess Michael of Kent's comments to the Blackamoor brooch that met, uh, worn to Meghan's first Christmas, to the racism stories that we've heard shared by the couple, by the Sussexes earlier this year. And from what we know, of course, about the institution too, I know many people have worked there over the years and it's certainly perhaps a place that has been late to fully embrace the sort of diverse workplace that we have come to know and love in many parts of the country and the world today. So I thought what was so interesting about this was the reaction from Buckingham Palace, because, listen, when we had Harry and Meghan make those uh, claims earlier this year, uh, we did, of course, see the Queen acknowledge 
their pain and suffering through very difficult times in that statement. But there was also it was also caveated with recollections may vary. And we didn't really hear from any other members of the royal family at that time, uh, sort of condemning racism uh, amongst the family, other than Prince William's denial that it existed within within the family or the institution. And of course, this sort of goes against that claim, because obviously it has been there at times in the past. Yeah, Omar, I think you make a good point that obviously this is coming from something that happened decades ago, but the fact that the response today doesn't quite live up to the magnitude of what happened throughout history, uh, it's it's really telling and it's kind of... a, a well, potentially a missed opportunity to tackle some of these really important, meaningful conversations that they could be having. So let's just, um, I'll read the, the, the statement from the palace first, so then we can get the reaction. Um, this is what they said after those claims. They said, claims based on a secondhand account of conversations from over 50 years ago should not be used to draw or infer conclusions about modern day events or operations. The principles of crown application and crown consent are long established and widely known. The royal household and the sovereign comply with the provisions of the Equality Act in principle and in practice. This is reflected in the diversity, inclusion, and dignity at work policies, procedures, and practices within the royal household. Any complaints that might be raised under the Act follow a formal process that provides a means of hearing and remedying any complaint. Interesting. What do you think of it? Is that enough? Yeah. I mean, I, I think obviously it, it is worth pointing out that this is, of course, we, we talk about documents unearthed in the National Archives. They are documents that refer to conversations that have taken place. So these are not official documents that have come from the palace itself. That said, it is has not certainly been denied or challenged by the palace. But I also think that what we've seen a lot of in certainly in the past year or so, particularly since the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, is that we have seen companies, organisations and institutions hold themselves accountable to practices in the past and talk about how they have moved forward or how that has become a teachable moment in the present day. And I think what we find missing from the statement from the palace this time of time is any sort of apology for a policy that perhaps could have been very hurtful um, to a large number of people at Mm. a, a difficult period in time and will no doubt have been uncomfortable reading for many people today. It almost seems like a bit of a missed opportunity that we have still not seen the sort of modern monarchy Uh, go to much effort to um, sort of put right mistakes made in the past or at least address them or or own them. Hmm. Yeah, and I just think there's such an opportunity. This is something that, you know, you could educate people on, educate the history of, yes, this was happening in the palace, not just there. It was really happening, as you said, you know, across institutions and workplaces and governments, uh, whether it was the UK or America or across Europe. Uh, This is a chance to talk about that, talk about how it's still affecting people today and what they're doing to make the situation better. Um, We could have been talking about all of that right now. And, you know, I think that this statement addresses um, some of the issues, but um, I just wish there was kind of more conversations that could be had to, to help uh, drive this forward instead of being so defensive. 
Yeah, well, those following the Royal Beats or listening to the show will remember it was only a couple of months ago that we heard Buckingham Palace uh, officially announced that they were planning to hire a diversity chief Mm. um, to sort of join their operations at the palace and across the three major royal households. That position, as far as I'm aware, has not been filled yet, but perhaps this is the right time to do so. Right, well, in other news, the dress that Princess Diana wore on her wedding day in 1981, that is almost 40 years ago, Maggie, is on display in the UK for the first time in 25 years. Earlier today, I caught up with one of the curators at Royal Style in the Making, which is an exhibition currently on at Kensington Palace for secrets of the dress currently on loan from both Princes William and Harry. Well, Matthew, congratulations on the launch of the exhibition. It's great to see something open to the public for once. I feel like so much of your treasures have been hidden away from us for the past year. Um, but what, what a way to, for Historic Royal Palaces to come back. Thank you. It has been so exciting for us to throw open the doors at Kensington Palace and welcome people in to see this beautiful exhibition royal style in the making it's what we love most having people in our palaces giving them a wonderful day out and it's so great to be doing it again and brilliant timing of course because of course the star of royal style in the making is princess diana's wedding dress from 1981 uh, this is going on display just a month before what would have been her 60th birthday we're already seeing more tribute starting to build as we uh, approach that day of course with the statue unveiling by harry and william at kensington palace so this is a great way to kick off those sort of like series of moments remembering her incredible life and of course some of those fantastic fashion moments um i was just talking with maggie about the dress and we both sort of commented that it was very of the time that sort of 80s opulent all size and volume and very impressive on every level and I think in person we of course had the Good Morning America cameras there this week it still is a sight to behold. We were so excited when we um, installed that dress the kind of confident choices that Diana made with her wardrobe from uh, right at the beginning of her public life, just as she was stepping into this life as a member of the royal family, everyone says she she could have gone for a more for a long as long established dressmaker, but instead she chose with fresh faces on the London design scene, um, Emmanuel, and it's because she wanted something that was fashionable. But what they produced, and when you see the dress. You understand it. Yes, it had this very fashionable 1980s silhouette with the full puff sleeves, that frills at the collar, those bows, but it has a real classic and timeless quality to it as well. I think what's so impressive about seeing the dress in person is that you have it in this sort of large glass enclosure. But of course, the dress is on loan for the exhibition from Princes William and Harry. But something like this of course is stored very safely how much goes how much work goes into setting up something like this is it sort of all hands on deck or are there certain only certain people who are allowed to touch it how does that work 
the loan of the dress was administered by our colleagues in the Royal Collection Trust. So they looked after a lot of the details of putting it on a specially made conservation mount. We, of course, provided the case and it requires a huge case to show it. And thank goodness we've got a big enough room to display it in as well, <laughs> because that, that train is 25 feet long. And we've just restored our beautiful historic orangery, which is this fabulous building from 1704. It's got this beautiful white, light, airy, classical interior with these great huge columns. So we've got this beautiful room to display the dress in and this huge uh, conservation grade case with all the lighting set to a very low level, but just enough to bring out the sparkle of the sequins on the dress. It, it, it was quite an undertaking, but it has come together beautifully and the dress just works wonderfully in the space. Diana, of course, had a really special relationship with her dressmakers for this. Um, and one of the special things about the exhibition is that you also get to hear some of the stories around the making of it. Do you have any personal favourite anecdotes? It's the personal stories that I like. Um, and about the people who made it. So we, in the exhibition, are reuniting the dress with all of the material from the Emanuel workshop. And the dress hasn't been with that material uh, since the day before the wedding in 1981. <laughs> um, and so we can talk about the people who made that dress and the efforts that went into the whole process. So one of the exhibits we have is a set of keys. And one of the keys has a little label on it saying Elizabeth's key for Elizabeth Emmanuel. And the reason for that is because the dress and all of the material, the fabric swatches, the trial pieces, all of it was locked in a safe in the Emmanuel workshop every night and guarded by two security guards because the whole process had to be kept top secret because they had the press uh, camping outside and even rifling through the bins uh, to get any clues about what the <laughs> dress would look like. Uh, so I like the fact that um, the Emmanuel's left false trails. So they put um, dummy bits of fabric in the rubbish to throw reporters off the scent. But I think in a really nice touch, um, only three members of the Emmanuel staff worked on the dress because it had to be kept so secret. And Rose and Nina were the seamstresses. But all three of them got invited to the wedding. And I think that's a beautiful touch because they put so much care and so much love into constructing the dress so beautifully, sewing on the lace sewing on all those embellishments and they got to see it as Diana walked down the aisle and I think that's so special. Absolutely and it's obviously gone on to become the most famous wedding dress in, in the world but of course there are a number of other incredible designs of the exhibition including other outfits worn by Princess Diana including her going away dress. Uh, I don't think I don't recall seeing that in an exhibition before, uh, correct me if I'm wrong but it's a beautiful pink dress designed by David Sassoon that she had worn as she set off on her honeymoon with Prince Charles. So just following, of course, the royal wedding 
itself. Um, and, and what are some of your other favourite pieces in the collection? The exhibition actually looks at many decades of royal style from the 1930s to the 1990s. And it gave us a chance to talk about designers we don't often talk about. One of my favourites is Madame Handley Seymour, who was a court dressmaker of the early 20th century. And she comes across as this very astute and determined and talented businesswoman. She came from the north of England, uh, from Blackpool, and she kept that Lancashire accent her whole life. And she built up from 1907 onwards a very successful dressmaking business in London. She was an expert in court dressmaking, so she knew all of the rules for making clothes appropriate to be worn at the royal court. And she was the Queen Mother's favourite designer in the early years of the Queen Mother's life. So she designed her debutante dress for her to come out into society. She designed her wedding dress and she designed the most important dress that the Queen Mother ever wore, her coronation gown. And mm. we have in the exhibition an extraordinary object, the prototype for that coronation gown. A technical term is a toile and it's made out of just cotton calico fabric. The finished dress has extraordinary gold embroidery. And on the prototype, they painted it on in gold paint to work out the design, this, these trailing foliage designs, which incorporate symbols like the rose and the leek and other um, symbols and emblems of the United Kingdom and also the Commonwealth countries as well. And this extraordinary toile, which they used to work out not just the design of the embroidery, but the fit of it for the Queen Mother as well, still has pins and tacking stitches from 1937. So for me, that's a great way into introducing a designer we don't often talk about, the Queen Mother, who really mm. should be remembered as a real fashion leader, really important for the history of fashion, um, and also celebrates the craft and the work that goes into creating these incredible royal gowns. Well, you've got three generations of uh, style represented at this exhibition, um, but also some more curious or sort of exquisite things on display, including Princess Margaret's fancy dress costume. Okay, you're not meant to have favourites in an exhibition as a curator, but I don't think it's much of a secret now, but that is, that's one of my <laughs> favourites. Um, it's this extraordinary, um, with this great wide skirt in 18th century style. It's a turquoise silk and it's got gold brocade and these little gold um, bows and, and decorations. And yes, Princess Margaret wore it to a costume ball in aid of the St. John Ambulance, so one of her favourite charities in 1964. And we're showing it for the first time since 1964 with its original sketch. Uh, the sketch stayed with the maker, the great theatrical costumier Monty Berman, probably known as part of Angels and Bermans. Um, and of course, the dress stayed with Princess Margaret. But there's a nice personal story 
in there as well, because the dress is designed by Oliver Messel, who was one of the leading theatrical designers. No, he was the leading theatrical designer in Britain in the middle decades of the 20th century. And he specialised in creating these beautiful fairy tale dream worlds that took inspiration from the styles and the past and then just created something extraordinary with them. But it gets personal because he was actually Princess Margaret's uncle by marriage because mm. he was Lord Snowden's uncle. Um, and there is a strong relationship there. So Oliver Messel actually threw Margaret and Snowden an engagement party. And he also designed her villa on the island of Mystique. Well, she certainly was known for her style. And it's great to see these pieces all in one place. Um, I think as good a job as we've done describing, you cannot be seeing in person. Of course, a royal star in the making is already open to the public and on for the rest of the year. So you have no excuse not to miss it. Thanks again for joining me, Matthew. Thank you so much. Well, that was Matthew Story, a curator at Royal Style in the Making. It's already open to the public and open until the end of the year. So you have no excuse to miss it. It's well worth it. I think as fun as these stories were, nothing beats seeing the items in person. And for more information, head over to hrp.org.uk. So you can go and see that 25 foot long train (laughs) in person for yourself. It takes up pretty much the entire length of the room, Maggie. I was going to say, I feel like it's hard to imagine how long that is till you see it in person. I still don't know how she walked down the aisle on that. It's incredible. Slowly. (laughs) Slowly. (laughs) Carefully is how. Very cool, though. Uh, Maggie, I've got a burning question for you. You've lived in the UK for what, two years now? Yeah, almost two years. Two years. Uh, How how far along have you come in your tea-making ritual? Is tea part of your life yet as as an honorary Tea is definitely part of my life. And I I did discover the um, tea section at Fortnum & Mason, which was a really exciting discovery. Went a little crazy in there. And I actually... I forget what it's called now, but there's a bunch of Queen's blends in in Fortnum and Mason tea sections. Of course I bought those. I wanted to be royal myself. Um, It's a work in progress, but I did just learn something. A friend of mine was um, telling me about builder's tea, which I had no (laughs) idea what this was. But now, so when Americans, when you come to visit England, you'll notice in coffee shops, it's an option. It's like, like, like latte, blah, 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 builder's tea. And I just never really paid attention. But my friend was over and he, he asked for, oh, I'll take, take, take builders. And I was like, what does that mean? What are you talking about? I literally have no <laughs> idea what you mean. Um, but now that I'm talking about it, oh, but I kind of forget. Shoot. Okay, so it's, it's, just, it's, like, it's like the black tea bag. It's just like straight tea. And then, and then you add, and it was with some milk. And then you ask for the sugar. Oh, shoot, I'm, I'm messing it up. I, I, I was told there's a certain way you ask. It's like, so, like someone's like, I'll take a builders. And then you're supposed to say like, Sugar? What do you say? <laughs> I think would it be one lump or two? Yes, yes. Okay, Maybe. that's it. That's probably. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but oh, I tell you who would know. That's what it was. That's what it was. Who would know yeah. is the. Hang on. But I tell you who would know, and that is. Duchess Camilla's son, Tom Parker Bowles. <laughs> Speaking of Fortnum and Mason, he's just written a book for them called Time for Tea uh-huh. that goes into the history of Britain and its tea. And he 
also, so you're in good company here, talks about how he likes to start his day with a builder's tea. That's a robust cup of black tea with a little milk and sugar. Um, It it puts him in a slightly different bracket to other members of the royal family because Prince Charles, as we know, prefers his tea with milk and honey. That's kind of where I'm at. Uh, The Queen likes a little milk with no sugar. Um, So it is quite varied across the board. I'm more of a coffee drinker, so does that make me a shameful <laughs> Brit? Brit? <laughs> I wouldn't admit that, Omid. <laughs> yes, and perhaps on that note, we should bring the show to, <laughs> to an end. Uh, but thank you again, guys, for tuning in. It's always great to hear your thoughts. We'd love to hear what you think about the palace's response to that explosive Guardian investigation. The paper says that they have more revelations over the weeks ahead, so all eyes are on them right now. You can, of course, find myself at Scoby on Twitter and Maggie at Maggie Ruley. I should know this by now. Um, just use <laughs> the right. hashtag. Also, the send me how you take your tea. I want that one as well. <laughs> All right, let Maggie know how you take your tea. Um, we should ask Anthony over in New York as well. Yeah, Anthony, send us your tea recipes. <laughs> uh, big thanks, of course, to Anthony Alley in New York for bringing the show together. And we will be with you next Friday following the launch of the Duchess of Sussex's new children's book, The Bench. Mm. Uh, I have a copy here, um, but I'm not Ooh, able to sneaky. talk about it yet. But it is, uh, it's great. It's a really, really strong book. Well, Omen, I'm very excited and excited to catch up with you again next week. But um, as always, it was so fun chatting. Take care.